Welcome. This is William Evans, and you are listening to a Living World conversation about our human relationship with water. Our guest today is Mark Weinhold, president and founder of Terra Firma Rainwater Collective. Welcome, Mark. Yeah, thank you, Will. Nice to be here. You spoke with us in October of 2009, and you suggested we get connected, know where our water comes from, where our water goes, know where our food comes from, because without answers to those simple questions, we don't have a basis for evaluating our action with water. Thank you for reminding me of that. 2009 was a long time ago. And uh, fortunately for our conversation, I, I still feel that way. Well, I, I can tell you do. There was an additional unforgettable detail you shared with us in that conversation. And it was about the volume of existing water rights for diverting flow from the Western slope to the east to the front range. Tell us again, if we were to stack water onto an acre, how high a tower that would be. Yeah, with, with the existing water rights that go to the front range, uh, well, water storage is typically measured in acre feet. So imagine a football field, a soccer field, one foot deep, that's about an acre foot. So if you stacked all the water that the front range has rights to take through the continental divide, it'd be 140 miles high. That's a significant stack of water. Of course, they don't divert all of that right now, uh, but that's what they have rights to. How many acre feet is that, do you know? Uh, something like 750,000. Acre feet. Yeah. Wow. Okay, well, that's... That's a review of the past and a reminder of the present reality. In 2018, because of your experience as a hydrologist with the uh, Forest Service, you were invited to the Congo by the U.S. Embassy there to consult on urban erosion issues. Tell us what you experienced at your arrival on the Congo River in Equatorial Africa. Yeah, that was, that, that was a, an interesting trip. And fortunately, I've been able to travel around a bit and see different parts of the world, or at least the, the water-related aspects of different parts of the world. And I can definitely say I've never seen anything like what's gone on or is going on in Congo, where you have these huge megacities built along the Congo River or the terraces of the Congo River, and they're sitting on maybe 100, 200 feet of sand. And when you get rainwater that collects off of roofs and dumps into the streets, rather than infiltrating into the ground, it creates these gullies of enormous proportions that they might be 100 feet deep and they swallow houses and roads and pipes and uh, basically anything in their path. And we humans, particularly as we, uh, we gather in urban areas, I think, are vulnerable to forgetting water's power and humility. We, we certainly are, and a lot of times we'll, we'll address that through an engineering action, and you think about a city like uh, New York City that 
has a huge population density and a very high amount of the ground is covered by something impermeable. So there's a tremendous amount of runoff when it, when it rains. But you know, we in this country have spent billions of dollars in infrastructure to take that water, collect it in the street, pipe it to somewhere that we consider safe, which is usually a river. And that's the last we think of it. But boy, you look at some of these other big cities around the world that does, do not have that same infrastructure. When it, when it rains, things get dicey. Well, tell us what happened when you, uh, you got to the Congo and were escorted to uh, see the, the urban monsoon erosion. Well, I think the, the precursor to that is to just provide the context of someone who looks like me does not blend in in the Congo. So um, <laughs> I stick out like the proverbial source thumb. So perhaps one of the more you know transformative moments for me in that whole process was we went out to this one side of this gigantic gully and we're milling around, scratching our heads in disbelief of what can go on. And I wandered off to the side at one point and was standing on the edge of this and a, an older man came out of his house and saw me and knew something was up. And his, his comment to me was when, when he saw me and my colleagues standing there was, oh, now we have hope. And that, the, the basis of that is that these, these neighbors have been quite frustrated with the lack of response or the lack of the ability to respond by the Congolese government. And so when they see someone like me standing there they at least make the assumption that hopefully something will change and it will change for the better or something or someone somewhere is looking at this. And if I were gonna be 100% honest, uh, that was way more pressure than I was willing to take on in the moment. Of course, I, I smiled and chatted back, but the honest answer is I, I, I didn't have any hope for him and his house because it was way too close to the edge of this erosion feature. And the sandy soils tend to lay themselves back pretty flat over time and, and so they can become vegetated. And his house was certainly within that envelope. But I use the word transformative because it, it really did transform my thinking talking to him because I had no hope that that particular situation would be successfully resolved for him. But I did twist it around to think that there's a whole lot of hope for preventing the next one of those from happening because th this situation is not going away in those geologic and hydrologic settings. And especially as population grows around these cities, that, that situation is going to be repeated over and over and over if there's not some sort of preventative solution applied. Well, and you, you've told me that there are perhaps 500 of these gullies and thousands of homes and roads and perhaps schools have been swallowed by these gully washers. Yeah, exactly. In the, the, the capital city of the Democratic Republic of Congo is Kinshasa. And that's home to, I don't know, it, it's hard to get an estimate, but it's probably 14 million people, something like that. So it, it's a mega city. And 
a colleague of mine who works over there who's who's inventorying these things says the count is at about 500 and uh it's not stopping at that well and understandably that gentleman who came out to talk to you and his neighbors and everybody on that hillside are frightened and when when you're frightened humans get trapped in tunnel vision and they don't see well but he also handed you a thread with which you were able to weave a new way of looking at the situation because you were able to see the big picture. Yeah, I, th I think that's true. I think that's true. He, he gave me an opening because typically when, when I'm in those type of situations in, you know, whether it's in Africa or Asia, it's, it's a, a governmental intervention. And so it tends to be a little bit high level and you work with the local people there, typically at the government level and come up with some ideas, some recommendations, and you give presentations and write reports. And quite honestly, when you leave, you often don't hear about it again. But, but that thread that he put out there, it, it certainly got woven into to my own fabric that I couldn't really just leave this one because, I recognize that there are ways to address this, but they're at a very different scale than what would go on with the U.S. Embassy or USAID or, or our bigger pieces of government working over there. So I'm sure one of the things that happened when you were there was you, you stood in the rain and watched the water come off the roof and looked at the ground and saw what was happening. Yeah, that is uh, that is eye opening, and and I'm sure a lot of the people who who might have listened, who might listen to this, have have traveled. Uh, Southeast Asia is a good place, at least where I've experienced this before, where the the rainfall intensity is just in amazing. How much water comes out of the sky, and the way that the topography works there that with these generally native surface roads when you drive and walk on them over time they end up a little bit lower than the adjacent ground so they end up as a kind of a de facto collector system so when it rains an inch or two or three these these roads literally become rivers and or lakes and it's, it's just phenomenal the amount of water that can come out of the sky in those monsoon climates in a short amount of time. Well, and if you're, if you're looking under the drip edge of the roof, you see a little indentation begin to develop in the earth. That, that's true. It's, you know, a, a single water drop will, can, can cause soil to detach in a road. And when you, uh, turn that into a small stream coming out of every single corrugation on a roof, it can kind of look like a series of holes in the ground. And, and over time, it can swallow houses and roads and other buildings. It does, it does. And if you think about sand, for, for those of us who have played on the beach as kids with uh, building sandcastles, it, it doesn't take a lot of water to start pulling those things apart. And if you have a city of 14 million people built on a deep, deep layer of sand, you start to get the idea of what can go on when water gets uh, gravity working in its favor. So tell us about when a preventive solution illuminated your awareness. 
we were giving a, a closeout presentation to the mayor of, of Brazzaville. So this was on the other side of the river. So Brazzaville is the capital city of the Republic of Congo. And it's about the size of Washington, DC. So it would be talking to a government organization about that size. We laid out these series of, of recommendations that, that tiered very heavily to their own academics working there and what they have suggested. We weren't, we weren't uh, creating a whole lot of new ground there, but I had some conversations on the side about this distributed solution, because you're talking about a government there that does not have tremendous financial resources to do large infrastructure projects. And so the solution really had to be, has to be distributed. And when I say that, I mean, roof by roof is how you keep water out of the streets and off of those hill slopes. So it becomes incumbent on everyone who has a roof to deal with their own water. And, and I told a woman there who worked for the city of Brazzaville that, you know, the, the next millionaire, I was trying to perhaps motivate someone, the next millionaire will be someone who comes up with a simple clip so you can attach a gutter to this corrugated metal roof. Because that really is the missing link there. The, those, those roofs are not built like ours where we have big two by six or two by eight rafters with a fascia board that you can easily attach a gutter to. This is just a, a cantilevered edge of a corrugated, of corrugated metal. So finding a way other than you know the proverbial duct tape and bailing wire to, to get a gutter on there that will stay there uh, is simple in the scheme of things, uh, perhaps, but missing nonetheless. This is KDNK, and you're listening to Mark Weinhold describe a problem with gullies in two cities on the Congo River in Africa being dissected by erosion and carrying away at the same time the, the very water that these families need to drink and cook with and clean with and grow food. So you knew a, a written report and a PowerPoint presentation wasn't going to make the change necessary, but you were focusing in on how to hook a gutter to the roof. Right, right. And what you'll see is that people uh, in, in relatively uh, wealthy homes will find a way to do that. And they were typically custom-made metal straps, something like that. But that's a tiny, tiny percentage of the homes. And then those would drain very often to an underground cistern that they would pull buckets of water out of over the course of the of the wet season and the dry season that that just isn't economical for the the people who live there it wasn't it wasn't that long ago that i saw one summary where the democratic republic of congo was the poorest country on the planet so coming up with a solution that is ultimately affordable for almost anyone to be incorporated into their, their roof design is to me the, the, the most important piece. And, and that's why that eventually the, the discussion kind of turns a little bit away from preventing erosion to supplying water that, that you don't have access to anyway. Because you know, if you think about it, if you're if you're one of the poorer people on the planet, the likelihood of you spending money uh, to prevent erosion for someone way downstream of you, the probability of that is low. 
but for you to spend money to have a water source so your you or your kids or whomever don't have to go fetch it on a daily basis then it starts to become something that uh, has has some more traction to it and you're you're addressing erosion issue essentially through the back door so you brought two needs together and yeah you, have, I, you know i i can't take credit for bringing them together but they they arrived together <laughs> right right you and you got a congolese team who were inspired by what you could see what are they doing while you're back here home in the, the roaring fourth valley are are they working yeah, yeah, they're doing all the work, Will. <laughs> there's only there's only so much. I'll be a little blunt here. There's only so much a white guy from Carbondale, Colorado can do in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And so it really is a, about helping to reallocate resources that, that I may have access to and, and to transfer power that may be ascribed to me somehow, but, but to, to, to bring that to bear in, in Congo and let the local people do the work that they need to do in their own communities. And how, how is that power organized in the Congo? Well, my, my partners, the groups that I work with are, are nonprofits. And so they are, the, the one in Kinshasa is started with university students. And as they graduated and they moved on to their professional careers, they, they decided that to, to create their own nonprofit to work in their own city. And I was fortunate enough to meet up with them a couple years ago. And we, we had a lot in common in what we were thinking and what we thought the issue was and, and how it might be addressed. So I've been super fortunate with the folks that I work with over there who are really bright, really engaged and, and super motivated to make a difference in their communities, which, you know, it turns out is essential because as we talk, you know, every two weeks we have a call to hear them describe the nuances of the community engagement to, to move this project forward and to get, you know, something demonstrable on the ground that people can see and relate to. Uh, it's a dance. It is a dance and they're, they're, they're very good at it because it's their world. Do they work in talking circles to engage the community? Quite literally, yes. So I'll get photos and it's, you know, folks sitting outside of a home with chairs in a circle doing exactly that, having, having their own version of a council on how to best uh, benefit the community that, that they live in yeah. with the people who live there. Tell people your, your website Terra Firma Rainwater Collective so that they can look at the pictures of the gullies and the solutions. Yeah, so if you search on Terra Firma Rainwater Collective, you will find it. And our web address is tfrain.org. So tfrain.org. Well, it was certainly helpful for me to look at that and see the magnitude of the problem, but also the device you created to uh, to attach gutters to the roofs 
And if I understand correctly, you you tested and made some prototypes with a 3D printer. Yeah, so if you were to go to that website, I think on most pages on the bottom right, there's a link that says prototype. And you can look at all the silly ideas we came up with, uh, you know, standing, standing in the yard and playing with corrugated metal and clips and, and whatever else. Uh, but we did come up with a design that we're still modifying based on the input from our, from our partners in Congo that eventually will be, will be molded, injection molded with thermoplastic so it can withstand the heat and the sunlight in that environment. But as it turns out that making an injection mold is, is really expensive to the tune of like $25,000. So you wanna make really sure that your prototype is exactly what you want it to be because there, there's, not, there's no going back there. So our, the advice that we got from our, our plastics person was uh, small batch plastics now are primarily just 3D printed. And, and it's an expensive way to do it in the scheme of things, but it's a way to, for you to get your product out there with a thermoplastic and begin to test it and then make those changes. So I had 150 of those 3D printed and I carried them to Congo in late September to start installing those. Beautiful. To connect up the picture and, and have you fill it out, the the gutters catch the rainwater off the roof, feed it into a, a home storage tank. Tell us about those tanks and how the people related to that kind of an idea. What we, what we introduced was a, was a storage tank that is, is by no means unique around the world for, for these kind of applications and it's called ferro-cement. So it's basically cement sand and water mixed into a grout. And then you basically smear it on a wire mesh. So imagine you put like a couple layers of chicken wire or maybe you're a heavier rabbit wire kind of fence. Um, and those are the sides of your tank. You're basically putting it on like stucco on a house. And it, it's really low tech. It's not expensive at all. But for some reason, it's, it's a, it's a low-tech technology that had not found its way, at least into Kinshasa, that we'd seen. There's a lot of reinforced concrete tanks that tend to be much more expensive and much more uh, require some more skilled labor. Our goal was to get a methodology and materials that were inexpensive and that the, on day one, the community members could participate in building. And that's where we've landed with ferrocement. So for many years, millions of people have been aware of the consequences of building houses on sand. And you were asked to come take a look at one of these situations and arrive in a sufficient state of balance to converse with the local leaders and people and see a, a win-win solution for preventing new gullies. What can you tell us about the way you live, your daily practice? How do you evoke and maintain that healthy balance so you're able to see the big picture of reality and sometimes lovely solutions? 
Well, I think that that for me, it's uh, a semi-constant reflection of who I am, where I am, and and how do I relate to the place that I'm in, and that you know, for me, well, it really comes back to a sustainability issue of, you know, how, how can I, at the end of the day, feel good about the way that I have lived and interacted with the environment that, that I'm in? And, you know, am I, am I a taker or a lever <laughs> within that equation? And so I think that kind of thought process is, is my, uh, underpins the the suggestions that I might have going forward. So I, I tend to look at situations like that in the Congo of stepping back from a big, large infrastructure solution that the government would provide, assuming they even could, and leaning more into what can each individual do at a very, very small scale that adds up to something meaningful in, in a relatively short amount of time. If the idea, if the concepts are well communicated, embraced, and implemented. Thank you, Mark. What a beautiful story. Be who you are, be where you are, look around and decide and do. Yeah, thank you, Will. And and I really appreciate the opportunity to come and, and chat with you about it. And you know, knowing your relationship with water over these years and, and all the effort that you put into your book, I, I knew this would be a, a fun and an interesting conversation. And I hope that, you know, the folks who might hear this might check out the website or they might check out anything related to water because I have certainly spent my adult career working in, around and with water and have a, a very intimate relationship with it. And so, uh, if, if we can spread that sort of feeling, attention, and caring to, to our friend H2O, uh, I'm all about it. What a lovely way to begin the new year. You've been listening to Mark Weinhold and a healing story of the early steps in regaining a relationship with water in the cities on the Congo River in Africa. This is KDNK. Thank you for listening.